The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hi there, I'm Hugh Linehan. It is Friday, July the 24th, and as we enter this high summer period, we're going to be continuing to keep you up to date on political developments as they happen on the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. But we're also going to be re-upping a couple of shows that we think you might enjoy hearing again, or that we think of a particular continued relevance. And I think that relevance is particularly obvious today as we watch events unfold in the United States with the federal government failing dismally to deal effectively with the COVID-19 pandemic. To understand that failure and its origins, you couldn't find a better place to start than the writer Michael Lewis and his book, The Fifth Risk. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Over the last couple of years, we have discussed the Trump presidency and American politics through a a number of different lenses, historical, political, social, and occasionally even allegedly criminal. But the writer Michael Lewis has taken a rather different route into the story. Lewis has written unlikely bestsellers on subjects from baseball statistics to the psychology of human decision making. And he has been looking at what's actually happening inside the huge federal department for which the Trump administration now has responsibility. And what he has found is deeply worrying. He joined me earlier to discuss The Fifth Risk, his new book on the subject. Michael Lewis, you're very welcome to the podcast. We spoke last, I think, almost two years ago for your really terrific book. I'd recommend it to our listeners, The Undoing Project. And I I seem to remember, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I tried to ask you a question or two about Trump and you were happier to stick to the subject at hand, which is understandable. But you then turned around and have uh, written a book about the new administration and what it means. Uh, you know, it's, I'm surprised I demurred because I have had opinions about him for a long time. I used to be made to review his books back in the day. Uh, but he, so, so what happened was I was just watching maybe, maybe more closely than I should have the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And, and what happened just was so different from what was supposed to happen that I started to get interested. Mm. Maybe, can we establish something from the point of view of our, our, our listeners, because most of them are Irish, or even if in the UK or most European countries, the process of changing from one government to another is quite different here. There's a, a, a new cabinet will be appointed. Ministers may have a small coterie of advisors, special advisors or experts, but the senior, the very senior civil service remains the same. Whereas in Washington, every four years, there's a turnover of more than 4,000 high-level government positions. Yeah, so the, it's a more traumatic event because, and, and more uh, critical to the mission that it be done well because you've got the president, has got, the president and his 4,000 political appointees are actually going to run the United States government. And uh, it's, a, it's an enterprise of 2 million people. And the, the, uh, the incoming administration has a period of you know, 75 days between the election and the inauguration to get up to speed with what's going on in the various federal agencies. And what was extraordinary to me was that the transition that normally happens just didn't happen. That normally what would happen, and what happened from Bush to Obama, for example, was that the day after the election, hundreds and hundreds of people would roll in from the Obama camp 
and sit down with people from the Bush camp or with the permanent civil service and be briefed on what's going on in the Center for Disease Control or in the Commerce Department or in the Treasury Department. And, you know, it's it's um, it, 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 this isn't an ideological matter. It's like they're problems. This is how we deal with it. Uh, the Zika virus got loose in the United States. This is how we dealt with it. We, you I, you know you might want to deal with it a different way, but if if another one happens, this is what you might want to think about. And uh, the Trump the Trump uh, campaign had a transition team uh, built kind of for show, uh, but wasn't a bad one. It was probably a pretty good one. Chris Christie had assembled it, but Trump fired it the day in the day or two after the election. Everybody, so there wasn't anybody to go in and receive the government. And he fired it. Partly at the behest of Jared Kushner, who had a long-standing family grievance against Chris Christie, but also perhaps did he maybe fire it because he didn't expect to win, so that well, therefore everything changed the day after well, the election. So, I think he allowed it to exist because he didn't expect to win. That he he didn't pay much attention to it. He thought it was for show. He assumed that it would then vanish after after the election. Once he he's elected, the decisions that this institution, his transition team, has made. If he keeps it, he's stuck with it. And he it had done things like vet Michael Flynn, who had the problem with Russia ties and was a Trump wanted to put install as the national security advisor. They had already quickly they had already concluded that he should be nowhere near national security issues. There were a number of people who they had vetted out of the government. And uh, it put Christie in a position of real power, uh, which Trump never imagined, I think. And so uh, he, he, that the combination of Jared Kushner being hostile to Chris Christie, Trump being perfectly capable or happy dealing in a completely chaotic environment, Trump actually thinking at some, in some odd way that the government was a trivial matter. He told Christie that, you know, after the victory party, we can spend two hours and know everything we need to know about the United States government to run it. And so he didn't, he didn't take on the gravity of the situation. He just kind of shoved it to one side. Uh, it, it, he found it more convenient to just get rid of this operation than than to uh, use it, and this created the situation where, I mean, I was I I so the book starts with me running around getting the briefings that they never bothered to get to try to figure out what risks the government are managing that that maybe aren't being managed properly or at risk of being mismanaged, and and you you and I could go out now and get shocking briefings that still have never been given that you, things that you were should be you. You really would want to know that no one's had a chance to tell the Trump administration. I should say this book is really terrifying. And one of the reasons it's terrifying is you focus on areas of the US government, which people haven't focused on so much over the last two years. There's tended to be a lot of focus on um, State Department, all, the, all these things that are going on in the Department of Justice, including over the, over the last few days, um, perhaps some of the things to do with Wall Street and the financial institutions. But you went to other departments and... One of the things I found bewildering was that the departments don't necessarily do what they what it says on the tin either. No. So the departments I focused on were the departments of commerce, agriculture, and energy. And if you were going to give them names that actually described what they did, you would call the Department of Energy the Department of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, the Department of Agriculture would be the Department of Rural, Rural America. Um, it provides the infrastructure for rural America. And the Department of Commerce would be the Department of Data because it really does collect a lot of the data that's critical for the society to understand what it is, the census, all the economic statistics. Oddly, the Weather Service is inside the Department of Commerce. Very little, has done nothing to do with commerce or very little to do with commerce. Um, but the, the reason I went to these places was 
just just because you people didn't know what they did. That you know, if I'm around a dinner table in Berkeley, California, filled with good liberals uh, who are who more or less approve of the idea of the government doing things and see it as a positive force, and ask them, "What do you think the Department of Commerce does?" No one has any idea. Uh, the, whereas people have a vague notion of what the State Department or the Treasury Department or the Justice Department does. And I, the purpose of the story was to dramatize, mainly for Americans, but to dramatize just how important these institutions are, even if they are misnamed. And if they go completely neglected, as they are, you know, seem to be going, um, what's, at, what's at risk? What's at stake? Uh, so that was the selection for me, I agonized about where to go because I really could have gone anywhere. You could have gotten similar stories anywhere. It was just a question of where can I, where can I usefully dramatize the situation? And the, the kind of stories you find, people might think listening to the list of, the, of, the, of those departments that this is quite an abstract book about principles of governance in the 21st century. But, I mean, you're a real boots on the ground, shoe leather kind of a writer, you get in there and you find these people and you find their life stories. And in a way, one one aspect of the book is it's a sort of a, um, a, a hymn to the virtues of public service, which is something which you don't hear about much in the United States. It is totally a hymn to the virtues of public service. And it, it's something that, you know, one of the nice things about about going going into places and actually reporting and asking questions is if you go in, you never know what you're going to find. The unaided imagination is a poor substitute for going out into the world and asking questions. I thought when I started this project that the story was about getting these briefings, finding out what the government did. It never occurred to me that the people who were doing it would be interesting characters. Um, if you'd asked me what I thought a civil servant would be kind of like, I thought kind of risk-averse, gray, quiet, difficult to get to make swing on the page. In fact... Um, which you find, and maybe in retrospect, it shouldn't have been that surprising to me. Here we have this institution, the United States government, that's been on the receiving end of just all kinds of abuse for the last 40 years. I mean, it, the, the politicians do not get elected being kind to the, new, the, the federal government. It gets bashed. It gets, it gets scrutinized. It gets, if anybody does something wrong, they're, they're publicly humiliated, and there's no upside. That nobody ever, Nobody's ever celebrated for what they did in government as a civil servant. So... Uh, it's surprising anybody wants to be there. But who wants to be there? The people who actually see the importance of it, who are attracted to the mission, who are willing to take less money than they would have gotten in the private sector for doing the job. And the jobs are of breathtaking consequence. So you go into, let's take an example. I mean, it never would occur to me that when you go into the National Weather Service that you would find people who were just, not just passionate about the weather, but motivated about the weather by usually something that had happened to them in childhood. Uh, a tree had fallen in their house in a storm when they were a little girl, and they were terrified of the weather, and they thought, when I grow up, I want to find ways to make people safe from the weather. That, 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 that runs right through the place. And people work, they work th their tails off trying to make better weather predictions so that Americans stay safe. They're completely devoted to the mission uh, in a way that brings tears to your eyes when you're talking to them. And uh, you go into the agriculture department, and there are pools of money, quite giant pools of money, which are there to, to essentially um, make rural America a civilized place to live. It builds firehouses and schoolhouses and delivers internet and water and, and power to, the, to rural America. There are people there who grew up in small towns 
left the small towns and went to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, went to, went, got an education somewhere, and could easily have just kind of turned their back on their past, but really loved the small town. And they want to do what they can to keep it from, from, from falling apart uh, and just devoted to the mission. That that still exists is a, an encouraging sign. So what happened over the last 40 years? How did this kind of it, idiotic, to my mind, in many ways, Ayn Rand philosophy that anything that has the word government involved is bad and should be destroyed whenever possible. How did that come to hold such sway? And how come we've now arrived at this sort of reductio ad absurdum of it, which is this just this wrecking ball in Washington, D.C.? So Reagan, Ronald Reagan, uh, proved its its usefulness, that idea, that the federal government's the problem, not the solution. Uh in a political camp, in the political marketplace, and it's been standard Republican uh, tactics since then. Uh, and the reason, the question, and the, it's a great question: Why does the American public accept the line that its government is sort of an enemy rather than a tool, rather than an extension of the society, rather than the greatest expression of the society? Um, and I think there are a couple of answers to the question. But the first and simplest is the government's not allowed to market itself. That apart from the, the, the Defense Department and the space agency, NASA, uh, it's forbidden from advertising and marketing and doing the kind of things Trump has done for about himself his entire life. So you drive around Ireland and there are signs that say yeah, the European Union built this road. There's no equivalent in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the firehouses and schoolhouses and 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 uh, water pipes and power lines and internet services delivered to rural America. There's no sign at all because that's red America. You're talking about right, that that's rural where America. red America, and they have no indication where the things are coming from, and it's very well disguised. It looks like maybe it's it's either it's local locally provided. Uh, so it's there's a big marketing problem, uh, and all you, so all people hear about. Uh, is the negative stuff. It's sold very poorly. Uh, the The other reason is it's complicated. You know, I think that look how Trump got elected. He got elected in the with, with the simplest possible slogans that lock her up, build a wall, drain the swamp, over and over and over. No discussion whatsoever about this vast enterprise he's about to take over. None. Uh, and I think it's because, because the minute you... Uh, start to go there. People's eyes glaze over. They don't understand it. It gets it gets complicated. Um, and I guess you know. Lastly, the the there is a feeling, and it's not unjustified, that uh, parts of the government have gotten kind of rigged. I mean, the financial the financial system dramatized this. Right, the regulators completely captured by the industry. Uh, money dominating the, the the conversation and the policy. And that's true in parts of the government, but vast tracts of the government, like most of what I describe, are not that way. It really is just decent, hardworking, mission-driven people trying to hold the society together. But it just that message doesn't get out. So the reality now is that the fifth risk to which you refer in the, in the title of the book is essentially the, the risk which we haven't quite figured out what it is. It's around the corner, but we haven't managed to conceptualize it. But you lay out some pretty serious risks in this book that are quite plausible. Um, so I don't. They do for me. You know, you go get the briefings and ask people, what are you worried about? 
and they're not shy uh, because they see the dysfunction. They see it that not only they, they've imagine sort of trying to keep this machine running uh, that's fifty years old that has not been tended properly. That's rusting. That you're not giving you're not giving the 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 tools to 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 repair. And then someone comes in and starts hitting it with a sledgehammer. Uh, the, the the risks that uh, that came tumbling out of, for example, the chief risk officer at the Department of Energy. Now under the under the stewardship of Rick Perry, who didn't know what the Department of Energy did, as he admitted himself uh, when he took over it, he called for its elimination as a presidential candidate without having any idea what it did. Chief risk officer, I asked him, so. Uh, what are you worried about? He he start, started pulling a um, document that had 138 big risks, and I said, I don't have time for that. Just give me give me the top five. And he said, Well, look, we're actually constantly worried that a nuclear weapon is is going to go off when it shouldn't. Uh, we tend the nuclear arsenal, uh, and uh, and it's come that's happened things. It's almost happened before. Um, uh, we're really worried that uh, there, there have been an uptick in attacks on the electric grid in the United States. Um, very sophisticated attacks, cyber attacks, actually physical attacks, many of them clearly coming from Russia and China. If, if, if those attacks succeed with a major part of the grid, you have a catastrophe on your hands. If uh, the Northeast is without power for three weeks, you have you people dying and mass migration, and it's people just won't sit in place. Um, the uh, he said we're really worried that the administration or any administration will come in on the heels of the Obama administration and not understand the physics of the Iran nuclear deal. The physicists from the Department of Energy were at the table negotiating that, negotiating that deal. And the reason they thought it was such a good deal is they knew, because they knew the physics of nuclear weapons, that at the back end of it, Iran would not be able to build a bomb. And that deal's gone already? Oh, it's gone already. So that's already happened. The likelihood of Iran getting a nuclear bomb has increased. And they said, and we're worried. And this was almost classified when I was getting this. This is not since not, not been. But the North Koreans were the, at the time firing seemingly haphazardly rockets into the sea. And it looked like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. And he said, no, you don't understand. They really know what they're doing. They've got scientists in there from somewhere, former Soviet scientists are turning up in North Korea and helping this program. And you could see that they're learning. These, 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 te- these firing rockets in the sea are tests, and they're getting better and better and better. And they, we're worried they will be, they will, not worried, they will be able to deliver a nuclear warhead to the United States, the continental United States. And then I said the fifth. I said, what's the fifth? And that's where I started to think about the title. It took him a while. He said, you know, I, I have to think about that. I have a ready list. But the, when we started to get deep into it, uh, he said, my fifth most serious risk, he said, it sounded innocuous. He said, program management. I said, well, what's that? He said, the federal government manages all this stuff that if it goes wrong, if it's mismanaged, you will not believe the catastrophic consequences. But it's very slow moving, a bit like, like climate change kind of problems. Um, and I said, give me an example. He said, will you ever hear of Hanford, Washington? I'd never heard of Hanford, Washington. 600 square miles in eastern Washington. 
uh, where the plutonium was manufactured for the nuclear bomb, one of the nuclear bombs that was dropped on, atom bombs, that was dropped on Japan in World War II. And it was done in such haste that there were millions and millions and millions of gallons of un- incredibly toxic stuff poured into the soil. You can't go there without being in a, haz- in a hazmat suit. You can't. You paint a terrifying picture of it's, it. It's, it's, it's a, it looks like a dis, this a dystopic futuristic movie it, the, this this wasteland that in the middle of nowhere where the government is estimated to have to spend 100 years and 100 billion dollars to clean it up now why not just leave it just like throw concrete on it and leave it the problem is those hundreds of millions of gallons that are in the soil ha- are this kind of plume that are, is moving th- through the earth towards the Columbia River, which feeds the entire Pacific Northwest. And if it gets there, it poisons the Pacific Northwest. And, and there are instances in the area, instances of certain kinds of cancer are through the roof. People I'm working on the site have died of strange things. It's a big deal. And this is just one little program that the government is managing and nobody really pays much attention to. So if we have then currently in charge of administration, I think somebody characterized it as um, malevolence tempered by incompetence. That's must raise these levels of risk in those and many, many other examples that you have in the book by a factor of 10 or more. So here's what I think. I think of it as you think, think of it as a basket of thousands and thousands of risks, some of them existential, some of them maybe not, but important things. And all of them have um, somewhat long odds. I, I, you know, say there's a one in a hundred thousand chance that the plume gets to the Columbia River. It's now one in ten thousand chance. It's all worse, uh, and and so it's a question of you don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something always happens to presidents, right? Obama had to deal very quickly with a financial crisis and a BP oil spill and this and that. It, Trump has been very lucky with mm-hmm. what he's had to deal with so far. And most of the crises have been of his own manufacture. Uh, we will one day see, and God knows what it will be, something happen that requires management competence in the, go- in the government. And it's going to be tested like it's never te- been tested before because he hasn't – look, the top 700 jobs that he's meant to have appointed, he's only only half of them are filled. The top 6,000 jobs in the permanent civil service, 20% of those people left the first year because they're more or less driven out. Um, you describe a sort of a witch hunt against people who had, who had even engaged, for example, with the climate change conference process. In the places in the government, the EPA, the Energy Department, the Agriculture Department, where there were uh, important research being done into, into the consequences and how to cope with climate change, um, the one contact that Trump administration had right after the election was to send people in and demand lists of the names of the people who had done so, who had gone to climate change meetings, for example. And clearly the whole point was to intimidate uh, who, the permanent staff uh, so, at, so that they would cease, cease to be talking about climate change. And the people who were doing the intimidation were um, mainly lobbyists from associated with the fossil fuels industries. So anything that threatens the profits of coal and oil uh, is, is uh, they're hostile to. And this is, so the strains in the, you know, the, one of the, the byproducts of my narrative, it wasn't what I set out to do, but it kind of falls out of the story, is what's going on in the Trump administration. Mm. And once there is neglect, indifference, arrogance, 
But there's also this, if you don't have actually a positive mission when you take over the government, what, what, what fills the vacuum are narrow financial interests. So you see lots of places with people who have very, very serious conflicts taking over little pieces of the government where there's money to be made. Weather service is a classic example. Classic example. So the weather service is the weather service is the way Americans can rely on getting a good weather forecast, and and is it is the only way they get forecasts for whether they might kill them, tornadoes and hurricanes, and uh, and there is a private sector company called AccuWeather that for the last 20 years has been lobbying to prevent the weather service from communi- communicating with the American people in all but the most urgent moments. Um, so that AccuWeather and other private companies can make more money delivering weather forecasts. So they aren't competing with the government. But the problem with this is that the taxpayer, American taxpayer, pays for the, all the data collection uh, that, that generates even AccuWeather's weather forecasts. Um, they've, they've paid for these forecasts already. And the idea that you shut down communication between this public enterprise and the people is insane because – if they aren't communicating routinely, they won't be able to communicate well in a, in a crisis. But into the job of running the National Weather Service, Trump appointed the CEO of AccuWeather. Uh, the the absolute worst person to put in the job. The shamelessness of that is extraordinary, isn't it? Unbelievable. It's un- the, the, the lack of the lack of with many of the people who Trump appointed uh, into jobs. The honest reaction of the person, if they were patriotic, would have been, I'm really not suited to this job. You really shouldn't put me in this job. That's the thing that's been surprising to me about a lot of the point is why people have accepted these either either with jobs where they had such naked conflicts of interest and everybody was going to be able to see them or jobs for which they had absolutely no preparation or qualification. It's like if you said uh, if you said to me, uh, Michael, stop being an author and we want you to run our nuclear power plant. Uh, we'll pay you five times what you're ma- being made. What I should say is I actually don't know how to run a nuclear power plant. I mean, I could learn, give me some years on the job if you really need it, but I shouldn't take the job of running it. And I don't know of any instances of anybody in the Trump world. So you have a Florida talk show host being appointed chief scientist in a key role. I mean, so no I, scientific so, qualification. So, so an Iowa talk show radio host, right-wing guy who supported Trump early, has some dubious Russian connections too, but no science background, was handed the Department of Agriculture's $3 billion a year um, research and development fund. And that fund, everything it's doing is one way or another related to to, uh, making sure that we can produce food in a a different climate. Um, It's adapting to climate change. He has n- n- no idea. I mean, that, that, that's supposed to be run by an agricultural scientist. And you wonder now what happens to research. Uh, you know, what happens? But, but Trump won't suffer the consequences of this. Nobody in America will see this. It's 30 years from now when you can't grow corn anymore, uh, where you need to go because you haven't developed new seeds uh, or whatever it is they do in those laboratories. Uh, they'll feel the consequences. And why that person? The right wing talk because anti science does seem to be a kind of core guiding theme. That's exactly right. Today. That's exactly anti a kind of willful ignorance. That um, a kind of there's no such thing as expertise, which is a natural extension of what's happened in America for a while. The natural extension of the idea that's what's been going on for a while is an attempt to sort of deprofessionalize and thus kind of delegitimize uh, the civil service. And truth is that a lot of civil service has very specialized skills. 
Um, and when you send this, we sent this the signal out for so long that they're just a bunch of lazy bureaucrats. That now you have people rolling in who have no work experience at all, being handed jobs in these departments. Because it's just assumed, well, anybody can do it, so it might as well be a friend of Trump's. Looking, looking at this, so much of it seems almost like a form of extreme decadence, sort of a society which is sort of folding in itself, unable to do the things which made it great, to, to use that phrase, uh, in, in the first place. Is there, is there any way back from this? Yes, I think so. And I think that we're starting to see, I'm a glimmer of hope. I was detached. I was not paying attention as a citizen as I should. I voted. Uh, but but if you'd asked me what these people did in the Department of Agriculture and asked me to, to be interested in it, I'd have said, I got better things to do. I, don't, I now don't have better things to do. And uh, you see it in the voter turnout in the la- last election. I think the odd, unintended consequence of Donald Trump is, is going to be a massive increase in civic engagement, that sort of the society has to compensate in order to survive. And what you'll see and have been seeing actually for a while is, is, is strengthening of civic institutions at the local level, uh, people paying a lot more attention to the federal level, and the possibility opening up of a new narrative. That, and the narrative being the government is – it actually is the solution – it's the only solution to certain problems, not to all problems. Admitting that it's not perfect. No, no not, per- not perfect, not perfect, but the market will only handle so many things. And there are lots of things that happen outside the market that are critical for the market to be healthy and that the government performs these functions. And and I think, so with that, I think what you're what we may be seeing now is a groundwork being laid for a leader, a political leader to emerge who can actually sell a positive government story. And that that has to happen for anything really to change. The person who's elected president has to have said and seems to have a mandate for going in and not just fixing all the mess that Donald Trump has created, but actually the government does need a lot of serious reform. I mean, there are too many political appointees. It, they, they they are underpaid. They need The pay has to be more competitive. They need to be, it needs to be easier, easier to fire them and hire them. It takes 106 days on average to imp- hire a new person in the federal government. Um, the demographic profile is terrible. Crazy. Mm. In, in information technology, five times more people in the federal government over the age of 60 than under the age of 30. That's not a, that's not a tech company. Uh, it's, it's, it's got to become a place where talented young people want to go to work. And for that to happen, structures have to change. And it's got to happen or the society won't survive. You know, it isn't just a matter of, oh, you can let this thing fail and, oh, America will just chug along. It will, if the federal government fails, it is the United States. Uh, so I think there's a, we're getting to the point where people are sensing survival is In order stake. to affect that change, I, mean, um, I, I was listening to you, you were at a public talk last night and you were talking about how you noticed this time, for example, that talking about the book, MSNBC and CNN would have you on every day of the week, but there's no chance of you appearing on Fox News. So there are two Americas and those two Americas increasingly seem not to talk to each other. So if one is trying to return to some perhaps idealised former notion of a common marketplace of ideas where people can share ideas, how do we do that now? You know that's a that's another that's a that it's a related problem, um, and there's no if there was an easy answer we would already have had it. Uh, I think that I do have an eternal faith in the power of story. I think that narratives can 
can sneakily cross borders. And I think that um, not, not, not talk news, not cable news. Cable news is toxic. It just what it all it does is hardens everybody's opinions and hearts. Um, but different kinds of stories, novels, movies, documentary films um, can find their way into lots of different kinds of people's heads and be embraced. So cultures do change. Um, so I think that's one partial solution is finding narratives uh, that explained it. I mean, you know, one of the things that's odd about all this is the people who are most at risk for the federal government being mismanaged, of the federal government being mismanaged and neglected are the very people who put Trump in office. Rural America is behind Trump uh, in, in an extreme way. Urban America, which is much better off without the federal government than rural America, uh, already gets it. Um, so if you start to explain to people in a way they're willing to hear it, Without preaching at them or making them feel exactly. inferior because there are those, those Exactly. You know, and you've got to, you know, I'm always, I'm always heartened when I travel in America. So part of the book set in Oklahoma, reddest of red America. And it, you really do get a sense when you're there that, um, you know, whatever the liberal view of, of, uh, of red America is, if you're, you would rather have your car break down on the side of the road outside of Tulsa than outside of San Francisco. The likelihood of someone's going to stop and help you is so much greater that there's still, there is, there's still, there's goodness in both places. It just is not expressing itself politically right now. And finally, we do, we will have a new Congress, a uh, new House of Representatives coming in on January the 3rd. Do you think that it will be in a position to start investigating some of the some of the stuff that you write about in this book, because some of it is clearly looks to me like corruption. It's certainly a kind of kleptocratic government, not to mention the kind of corporate asset stripping you're talking about. No, it's unbelievable corruption. So Wilbur Ross is uh, the, the the Commerce Secretary is near the top of the list. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, yes, there's all there. The the question is, they're spoiled for choice. Where do you start? And they're, they're, I think probably the natural tendency will be to start with Trump himself and the Trump family. Uh, but they really, I'm hoping they look at the broader bureaucracy because there are just breathtaking cases of conflicts of interest and things that are happening that you just wonder how can those, but nobody's paying attention. And that they, might be politically wiser to draw the attention yes, away uh, from that, this yes. kind of soap opera yeah. and towards these these real instances. Well, you know, if you look at the, the, the things that, the pressure that Trump has succumbed to, it has been corruption of other people, not him. People using private planes, people, you know, so he has fired a bunch of people. He has responded to that. And you could move around the administration and basically pick off much of it. Uh, but, and he, and he, for whatever reason, he senses he, he has to listen to that message. He's defensive about himself and his own conflicts of interest in, his, in the immediate family. Everybody else he's willing to let go. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. The Fifth Risk is published by Alan Lane. And that's it for today. We'll be back on your feed again next week. But if you do want to get in touch with us, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks so much indeed for listening. 